This is Dialogue, a podcast of the Lenten Preaching Series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. I'm Paul McLean, Associate Rector here at Calvary, and tonight my guest is Canon Stephanie Spellers, Episcopal Presiding Bishop Michael Curry's Canon for Evangelism, Reconciliation, and Creation Care. She is a former church planter and seminary faculty member. Canon Spellers is also the author of Radical Welcome, Embracing God, the Other, and the Spirit of Transformation. In her most recent book, The Church Cracked Open, Disruption, Decline, and New Hope for Beloved Community. Stephanie, welcome to Memphis. Thank you so much, Falls. Appreciate it. Great to have you here. And it's a kind of an auspicious day for you to be here. Uh, we just learned uh, today that March 9th was the anniversary, 1892, of the People's Grocery Lynching, mm. where three uh, people who had started a grocery store that was truly to be a people's grocery uh, for African-American people and uh, to feel like that they had a place where they would be welcome to go to a grocery store were killed. Apparently the store was set up near where a rival white-owned grocery store and there was a lot of contention about that. And uh, the Ida B. Wells, uh, who made her mark as a journalist, covered this story and really put the eyes of the world on Memphis and this whole situation. And it really brought uh, a lot of awareness to lynching. And this is when people, people like our Lynching Sites Project and others are working in this area. This is one of the stories that apocryphal stories they tell. But just it may be in hearing that story and, and your research in the church cracked open, which really looked at a lot of the 2020 racial atrocities and injustices. What do you see in the connection past and present with some of those events? What does that conjure up for you? Well, thank you for the for the good question. And I'm so sorry yeah. that that this is one of it's a moment when, like, somewhere in Memphis, like, the streets are crying mm-hmm. um, still. Yeah. So that's my heart breaks, knowing that. And I'm grateful that we know. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful that we know because the only way that we're going to heal, the only way to, to get free is if we tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think as we tell the truth... One of the things that emerges, one of the truths that emerges is that we are still living in many of the same patterns. You know, that so much has changed. Amen. So much has changed. Mm -hmm. And there are still some fundamentals, especially about just American life and about white supremacy. You know, the idea that that America was built for the flourishing of white people. Mm -hmm. It just was. There's no... There's no counter narrative to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that what that means is that the systems in America, even when people might have had good intentions, unless they were really, really intentional mm-hmm. about dismantling that, that bent toward white supremacy, it controlled. Mm-hmm. And so you have the lynchings you know, that you all are remembering this day because the idea that black people would own a business that might compete with a white business was enough to get three black people killed. Mm -hmm. Just to think about, like, you wouldn't do that to a dog Mm -hmm. that was, you know, that was, like, in front of a store, making it a little bit hard for people to get inside. Mm -hmm. And then we fast forward to 2020 Mm -hmm. and George Floyd, Mm -hmm. but also Breonna Taylor Mm -hmm. and Ahmaud Arbery, Mm -hmm. And we've just seen, you know, the trial. Many of us just saw the trial, thank God, of Ahmad Arbery's murderers. Um, but we didn't know how that was going to go. Like, we were watching and wondering, 
what, what are they going to say? Mm-hmm. How could that set of facts be in front of a jury? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything had to line up to get a guilty verdict. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know that it would happen. So that same prioritization of white stories, mm-hmm. that same assumption that, well, if white people did something, must have had a reason to do it, and it mm-hmm. must have been a good reason. Mm-hmm. And the assumption that if a black person or a Latino person or an Asian person or you name it does something and somehow is, is, is harmed, mm-hmm. then the assumption is, well, they must have done something to deserve it. Mm-hmm. So that pattern is still there, Paul. Mm-hmm. It's still there. It still plays out, and people are still dying yeah. as a result. Yeah, yeah. There's a tremendous sadness and, and chill that you feel when you think yeah. about that. Yeah, and uh, and we should. Right. Again, we. I know that there are folk who want to sweep these stories under the rug. I know that there are folks who are like, well, but if you love America, you'll want America to, you know, to be able to move on, move on. But it's like you can't move on until you've reckoned with your past and your present. Mm-hmm. Again, we're not just talking about things that were back in the day somewhere. These are patterns that still operate today. Mm-hmm. So to sweep it all under the rug is actually to pretend something is not happening around us. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's not a mature way of living. No, <laughs> you know, it's no. like, la, 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 la. <laughs> I can't hear you, la, la, la. It's like, it's still going to happen, even if yeah. your fingers are in your ears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, it's what we would say to a, to a child. Absolutely. You know? It's like, time to deal, sweetie. And you're strong enough to deal. Yeah. One of the things I loved about your book, The Church Cracked Open, you you take us into stories in a different way, and I see things that I've never seen before. Mm. And even with the the biblical story that serves as maybe a basis for the narrative is the story of a woman with this alabaster jar of ointment who comes in to anoint Jesus. It appears in all four Gospels. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought of that as uh, just this beautiful expression of love, of her pouring oil on Jesus' hair, and what a lovely, beautiful tribute of love that is. But you really looked at the scripture more deeply and saw it as a moment of disruption of a dinner party in a very profound way. Tell us what you see in that story. Do you mind if I read it? Please. Could you, may I read this this passage for y'all? So that's why I was, I wasn't texting, you know, (laughs) I was pulling up the passage. My Southern Baptist grandma said, I can't believe you Episcopalians actually read four Bible verses every Sunday. So so go on. (laughs) And we read them on our phones. That's right. (laughs) So this is a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 3 to 9. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's performed a good service for me. You'll always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole 
world. What she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Like everybody here, March two years ago, uh, you I see the nodding, like, go back in time with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like two years ago, about now, we were just getting the news. You know, just churches were just having to, and just towns, everybody was just having to say, like, what is this thing that's, that's going around? What's happening? What's happening? And, um, and within a few weeks, you know, a couple of weeks, I guess, Lent had begun, and our doors were closing, and folks were freaking out with very good reason. And somewhere in the mix of all of that, I landed with this passage. And it felt like it spoke so profoundly, so directly, to the moment that I was watching unfold in front of us. Mm-hmm. This moment where it felt like, like something really precious had just gotten broken, cracked open. Mm-hmm. And that precious thing was our church, that precious thing was, was our country, our national understanding, our identity. This was also by this time post George Floyd, post the, mor- the murder of George Floyd. But um. So many things were falling apart all around. And I just kept coming back to this passage and feeling like God is telling us something here. And God's telling us a lot of things in mm-hmm. here. You know, that once upon a time, there was a woman and she broke in. <laughs> she broke into this gathering that she was not supposed to be a part of. She hadn't been invited. A woman would never have been welcome in that space. Mm-hmm. She went anyway. And then she doesn't just come in in order to feed the men or do whatever was appropriate for women to do. Mm-hmm. She comes in and she has this precious alabaster jar, like in itself a very expensive thing. And the, and the contents are costly nard, which mm-hmm. we learn in the passage is worth about 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages for some perspective, if in case you have not traded in denarii of late. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, if you don't have denarii in your back pocket. Right? <laughs> so there's so many layers of scandal, so many layers of outrageous, so many layers of wake up that are getting enacted in what this woman does. And like so much of scripture, we read it and we're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, moving on, moving on. It's like, don't move on. Mm-hmm. Stay with her. Mm-hmm. Something just happened here. And the thing that's happening feels a lot like what's happening with us. It's like, I imagine those men looking at the pieces of the alabaster jar and the oil all mm-hmm. around and feeling like, we got to scoop it up. We got to scoop it up. We got to get those pieces. We got to put them back together as closely as possible, resembling the, the original jar. We've got to get this oil. We've got to get it back into the jar. Why did she pour that out? She had no business. She had no right. And wasn't that a little of what we felt about our own churches? Mm-hmm. We got to get it back to where it was. We got to get back in the building. We've got to get, you know, so that we can hear the organ and see the acolytes and have all of the signs of church mm-hmm. instead of realize that actually a lot of the stuff that we were clinging to and calling church was about the building, 
It was about the trappings. It wasn't about Jesus. It wasn't about us being transformed into the likeness of Christ. It wasn't about repentance. It wasn't about following the way of love. It was about church the way that we've constructed it. And it got broke. And especially for the Episcopal church, a lot of church as we've constructed it, there's a story in how our church even gets founded. And it's a story like the, the, the ground that we are built on is um, it's a ground. It's the ground of empire. It's the ground of white supremacy. So it's like, see, so, you know, maybe if, all, if those are the things that are on the ground in pieces, don't put them back. <laughs> Just a thought, you know? Good thought. Like, we could, like, you don't have to put that alabaster jar together in the same way. Mm-hmm. The church that we become from here on, we actually have some choices. Mm-hmm. And we could put Jesus at the center of it instead of white supremacy at the center of it. Mm-hmm. And we could put love at the center instead of empire at the center and we could put others at the center instead of self at the center. So that's the hope that drove me to write this book. But mm-hmm. it's, it's a hope that really gets captured in that passage. Yeah. So it's a powerful image. And, and seeing that scripture alive and new for me, I will never read it again without yeah. thinking of the breaking of that jar. Good. You can hear it. <laughs> you, you can, can hear smell it. it. You can yeah. feel yeah. it. You know, like some of those pieces probably like went flying. You know, maybe there's a little blood on somebody. You know, (laughs) like she did, she, she, hopefully they were never the same. Yeah. And we won't be either. Right. Well, today at your wonderful sermon, you mentioned uh, one of our beloved friends here in Memphis, friend of the series, Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis! Yeah. And I, I want to just, uh, you, uh, you know, you talk about her in the book as well, about her idea of the church. Her, her big metaphor is rummage sale. Yes. The church going through a rummage sale every 500 years. Mm-hmm. And before she died, she believed we were entering a new age that she called the age of the spirit. Yes. And, uh, uh, and I wanted to hear from you what... What do you think of that metaphor, that description of the age of the spirit? Do you think, and, and perhaps the pandemic and the racial events that happened in 2020 or maybe contribute to us entering that age, but where do you see the age of the spirit emerging in the church and, and what does that look like? Um, well, I need to give, I, I gave Sister Phyllis a shout out in the sermon mm-hmm. and um, and what I remembered actually just as we were prepping mm-hmm. earlier is that after she passed away, there was a book of essays about her influence on the church and on culture and all of that. And I actually wrote one of those. <laughs> um, and I had forgotten until just like just a moment ago. And it's, it's a book called Phyllis Tickle, Evangelist of the Future. And there were a number of us who contributed. And my role was to write the chapter on what she had meant to the Episcopal Church. So, so yes, Age of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's fun is if you listen to my boss, Bishop Michael Curry, talking, he often refers to Phyllis Tickle, too. Mm-hmm. And he and I have had conversations about, like, you know we're in the age of the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> and you know we're fighting it. You know? <laughs> but it's, it's happening. There have been other ages when it was about control and um, structure and whatever it is that we were building and, you know, ages that were more amenable or whatever, you know, they fit better with God the Father. And then 
there there have been these ages where you know where Jesus I mean I, Jesus always speaks you know yeah. but perhaps the age that is very focused on the church would be an age that's very kind of Jesus centered and then there's this age of the spirit where good luck predicting good luck good luck saying we've got it together good luck saying well we've mastered this and now we will charge from point A to point G or whatever. Like you can barely get from A to B mm -hmm. without getting sidetracked by just life, by truth, by everything. Like I said, my sermon, I feel like I still hear her voice and I hear her laughing. <laughs> I hear her laughing like, I told you, <laughs> I told you. Like I talk a lot actually in the church cracked open about the idea of stewardship of privilege and that that if you have privilege, say if you have racial privilege as a white person, if you have, I have clerical privilege. Um, I, have, I have educational privilege because, you know, I've got a couple of master's degrees and, and one of them is from a school that starts with H, you know, near Boston, mm -hmm. whatever. <laughs> and so even though I'm the first in my family to go to college, you know, so I'm working class from Appalachia, I've also got that other piece. So I know that I have privilege. Everybody in here has some form of privilege. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to use your privilege? How are you going to leverage it for the sake of liberation? What I loved about Phyllis is that she leveraged being this white lady with white curly hair and her southern accent and her gracious ways, dropping bombs everywhere. <laughs> like, like Phyllis dropped bombs. Stuff that she said... I'd never get away with. Mm -hmm. She gave us cover. Mm -hmm. She gave us cover. She named what was happening so that those of us who were on the front lines could, could kind of get out there and get some stuff done instead of getting blown away. Mm -hmm. and, um, and to me, like, that's stewardship of privilege. Like, I wish that I could, could like, find her now. And maybe I would like, thank you, Phyllis. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for giving us cover and for naming that we are in this age of the spirit and for helping to decrease anxiety among people who would ordinarily be the ones who are like, no, you will not create these new forms or these re-enchanted forms of what is ancient. You will not. You will do it this way. And she created this room for us to explore um, and to say yes to the spirit. Mm -hmm. And I wish that other folk, whatever your privilege, use it so that you can say the thing that somebody else gets, gets dismissed for. Use it in order to show up in the spaces where like everybody looks at that space, that community and says, oh, well, nothing good comes from there. But if one of you shows up and is a listener, if one of you shows up and, and says, well, but I've gained a lot by being in relationship with this community, then a lot of other people who respect you and you're right, or share your identity, will have to look twice. Mm -hmm. Stewardship of privilege. Yeah. Like that's of the many, many, many things I'm grateful to Phyllis for. I'm grateful for her work identifying and inviting us into the age of the spirit. Mm -hmm. And I'm extraordinarily grateful, and I realize it even as we're sitting here, for how she stewarded her privilege. Mm -hmm.
Right. And I love that when you do talk about beloved community, and I want you to maybe tell us a little more about that phrase. And I yeah. know that's a big phrase for the presiding bishop, but for oh, you, yeah. you as well. And uh, but you all, always uh, are you you move us from saying being beloved community to becoming beloved community, mm-hmm. and that's kind of a Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's thing not too. accidental. Uh, no. Well, <laughs> well, tell us why why it's so important that we we understand this as becoming beloved community rather yes. than we all want to just be it. <laughs> right. Right. Boy, I guess it was in the, I can't remember when it was. It must have been, I guess, in the 80s or 90s. But um, Sandra Day O'Connor was on the Supreme Court, and she was hearing a case about affirmative action. And the case eventually went for affirmative action. Like, she voted for it. Mm-hmm. But she asked the question, how much longer are we going to need to have this? Mm-hmm. And what that pointed to for me is that we don't know how to stay. We want to know how soon can we be done? How soon can we arrive? Mm-hmm. And she wanted to be able to declare, and bless her heart, I was so grateful that she just said it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're like sitting there on the Supreme Court, but genuinely wondering, like, how long will I as a white person have to acknowledge that these systems are still operative? Because I'm tired and I don't want to talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that was Sandra Day O'Connor. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the folk in our churches, a lot of the folk in our, in our school systems, a lot of the folk just in our lives who just want to arrive. And they're like, but I have good intentions, so isn't that enough? No. I, you know, I'm not a racist. Isn't that enough? No. That it's not enough to say I'm not racist. It's not enough to say that I... I appreciate beloved community, we actually have to be on a road actively dismantling racism, Mm -hmm. actively dismantling white supremacy in the life of our church. We have to be actively resisting forces that have been around longer than anybody in this room, longer than this room. Mm -hmm. I hear that Calvary was the first, is the oldest building in Memphis, is that right? So white supremacy is older than that. <laughs> it's older than anything you can point to around here. So of course we're becoming. And we just need to relax and realize that there's no shame in that. I think a lot of folk, like we, we want to be able to master things. We want to be done. We want to be good. We want our, we want to be able to say that we fixed it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm a fixer. Like, my, my dad left when I was seven years old, and I remember when I was nine, I was already slipping budgets under my mother's door because I heard her crying, mm-hmm. and I knew that the money wasn't, wasn't adding up. Mm-hmm. And nine years old, I knew that, and mm-hmm. I was fixing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've spent my life fixing. Um, any clergy in the house? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're a clergy. Are you a fixer? Yeah. <laughs> Any therapists in the house? <laughs> You're fixers too. <laughs> you know? Just like we, we see something broken, we want to be able to fix it. And it needs to be okay that we're not going to be able to fix this and be beloved community. We, will, we are on the road, and God is with us on the road. And so just take the shame away. You know, take the stigma away. I mean, it's the same thing where people really freak out when you're like, you know, like when you use the word racist. They're like, but I'm not racist. I'm not. It's like, well, the worst thing in the world is not being called a racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the worst, the, something bad is, is 
participating in racist systems. Like that's bad. But mm-hmm. but everybody is so terrified of being shamed. It's like, can we just name what is without all the weight of it? It's like, yeah, that thing was racist. And now that we know that we can work on it. Mm-hmm. Instead of feeling instead of the shame and the guilt that get associated with certain words mm-hmm. or associated with with becoming instead of being. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Good, yeah, good. Yeah. I just, I think we need grace. Right. I think we need, we need space for grace. We need space right. to be able to say, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know what to do next. I'm a good, well-meaning white person, and I don't know what, I'm, what my next steps are. Right. That's okay. Yeah. Nobody's asking you to have the answers. In fact, if you said you had the answers, I'd be scared. <laughs> it's like, oh, sh-. You know? uh, no. now they think they have the answers. We're in trouble. Uh, okay. you know? yeah. This is not something to master. This is something to heal mm-hmm. over time together. Yeah. So breathe. <laughs> in fact, everybody who's here, and if you're listening on the podcast, just feel free to take a deep breath. Take another one. They're free. (laughs) We need as many of those we can. (laughs) (sighs) To me, it's another part of why that idea of the church cracked open is so I, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to hold this out to folks because what we can say is, yeah, it's cracked open. Now what? Mm -hmm. Instead of it's not cracked open. Yeah. It's not cracked. Everything's fine. It's like when you know it's not fine, stop stop clinging to the idea that it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 all right that a liturgy gets wonky. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay that some of your live streams were really bad. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all of these things are fine. God loves you enough to be with you when you suck at something, when you failed at something, <laughs> and and when you rock something. God's love actually doesn't waver in any of those phases. Mm-hmm. So can we just allow that to be? Yeah. Um, I studied Buddhism before I studied I Christianity. Tell, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm really, I'm really big on, you know, like, can you allow these things, these states of being to be without judging them mm-hmm. and without trying to, to excise them from your being? Because if you can actually just allow, allow the mud to settle you know, in that instead of stirring it and stirring it and, and feeling bad about it, we need to breathe in light of the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the full light, with the full weight of the truth, we need to be able to breathe. Yeah. And speaking of the truth, in, in the book, uh, you really do expose the Episcopal Church's complicity with empire especially, of course, with the practice of slavery, but also in relationship to indigenous peoples. Yes. And one of the surprising parts of the book, we talked a little bit about this earlier, and, and it was a shock to me, is the more truthful story you tell of the Episcopal Church not splitting into southern and northern denominations like many other churches did in the, mm-hmm. after, during an, in the aftermath of the Civil War. We've always, or at least I've been taught, that uh, the northern bishops kind of kept the southern bishops on the rolls and so that uh, there would be an easy, calm reconciliation. And we were so farsighted in doing that. And it was a beautiful story of, of how we did that and none of the other churches were able to do it. 
But uh, tell us the true story of that. <laughs> Talk about revision, yeah. revisionist history. <laughs> yeah, when I was in seminary, I heard that story. I heard the, you know, the, the narrative was that, you know, almost every other, I think, yeah, every other major, certainly Protestant denomination in America split during the Civil War. The Methodist split, the Baptist split, the Presbyterian split, but we did not. Mm-hmm. And the story was that we were so committed to reconciliation and um, so committed to, you know, the life of the gospel that we would not allow, you know, we would not allow ourselves to be torn apart and our mission as God's people to be interrupted in this way. You know, that we were, that we were bound and that, you know, we don't just split over anything. And then I did the research. And, um, and I had already learned some of this, but with Church Cracked Open, I spent months just deep, deep in the bowels reading through the notes, through the minutes from the House of Bishops meetings during the Civil War. So that's where I learned in reading, you know, journal entries and things like that. Um, I used to be a journalist, so I can go there. Like, I can just dig, 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 dig. Um, So I kind of did my own investigative piece, really, (laughs) about, so what's the real story of why we didn't split? And the real story is that the northern bishops were so embedded in the slave trade, had so much money riding, northern churches had so much money riding on the slave trade, that if it had ended, if this, if the Civil War had, had, you know, basically if slavery had ended, Northern Episcopal churches would have lost massive amounts of wealth. What was also true is that Northern and Southern bishops were very close to one another. They had gone to the same schools. They sent their children back and forth to live with one another, spent summers with one another, and so, for instance, John Henry, I think it's, yeah, John Henry Hopkins, mm-hmm. who was the bishop of Vermont, he sent his son down south, you know, regularly to work for the bishops in the south. So people, you know, like, so when you look at him, you're like, now wait a second, and then you dig some more, and you're like, that's the dude who wrote the Bible view on slavery, the one of the most popular and erudite defenses of slavery from a biblical perspective, the Bishop of Vermont did that. Not the Bishop of Alabama, not the Bishop of Tennessee, the Bishop of Vermont. Mm. And it's because they were so connected to one another that when those Southern bishops said, leave it alone, the Northern bishops were like, we got this. Mm. We were the church of the slaveocracy, North and South. Why did we not split? Because we weren't torn. Mm -hmm. Because we were in favor of slavery. Mm -hmm. Just sit with that for a second. Mm -hmm. That the reason the Episcopal Church did not split during the Civil War is because we weren't torn. There was not the conflict. We were on the side of slavery. Powerful. And, 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 and again, just like the alabaster jar, uh, just hearing that story again, I will yeah. never hear it the same way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it makes you wonder, like, what are the ways that we, have, that we have compromised the gospel again and again 
for the sake of an institution? Mm -hmm. What are the ways that we have compromised the truth of Jesus Christ because it was because it didn't match up with the the goals of the empire? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Over and over and over again, we have so much to repent of. Mm -hmm. There's so many pieces of this alabaster jar mm -hmm. that is the Episcopal Church that do not need to come back. Well, one of the things you, you did share that, uh, that, that there were some shards of light through the alabaster jar in Gotta our history. Have those. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you gave some names that I'd never heard before. John Jay II. Tell me who he was and mm -hmm. why he was a shard of light oh. in, in the midst of this. Um, so I taught a course at General Seminary that informed a lot of what's in this book. And the, the session that I did in that course on, you know, it was a course on reconciliation and solidarity in the Episcopal Church. And so I was kind of looking at our history and, uh, and part of that course was identifying, it's like, I need to be able to show these students some, some Episcopalians who didn't just follow that pattern, the pattern of, of complicity with white supremacy, with empire, with misogyny, with any number, just like you name it, with elitism. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had, there were several that I was teaching about, but I chose four for the book. Mm -hmm. John Jay II is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, John Jay II was the grandson of John Jay, first chief justice of the US um, Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So this was a dude with privilege. This was a dude with privilege. He had gone to Columbia University, trained to be an attorney, um, I think got his law license around when he was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So a very accomplished um, young man. And from the word go, mm -hmm. like even I think before he, before he even had his law license, before he even completed law school, he was already out there working in order to, to secure freedom, to keep the freedom of escaped slaves. And he he just stayed that course. Even when the Episcopal Church in New York, he was living in New York City. The Episcopal Church in New York, again, I've read through the diocesan convention mm -hmm. minutes where, you know, like people are shouting him down. He's trying to make the case for why St. Philip's Episcopal Church, the first black church in New York, should be admitted to convention. And all of these folks are like, be quiet. You know, be quiet. We're not going, they, a black church has no place in the councils of white people. Why would they be with us? Yes, we'd let them have a church, but no, they shouldn't actually be at our convention. And John Jay got up year after year after year, I think it was eight, seven or eight years, mm -hmm. that he kept coming back to convention saying, like, say, I mean, quoting scripture at people, just doing everything in order to make the case for this black church to be admitted into convention. He never got a second for his motion. And no. he kept coming and he kept talking. Kept coming, <laughs> kept talking. And actually, I think in 2019 or 2018, the Diocese of New York finally passed his resolution. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> FYI. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's the northern church, FYI. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he. there's so many stories that you can tell about him and how he put his life on the line. He put his privilege on the line for the sake of liberation. Mm -hmm. And I found such hope in his story and in stories of, of folks like him. Again, not just around race. Vita Scudder, 
mm-hmm. is another yeah. Yeah. whose story some people might know. But Vita Scudder was a young woman in the, I guess, she was alive from the 1800s into the 1900s. Mm-hmm. So she saw a lot going on. And she um, became Episcopalian as maybe, I think, like a teenager. Mm-hmm. And she had great wealth. She had education. She was one of the first women to attend, I think, either Oxford or Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, she could have, she could have cruised. Mm-hmm. Vita Scudder could have cruised. Instead, she became a socialist. And she ended up coming back to the States, teaching at Wellesley College, um, teaching women, and starting these settlement houses in the heart of Boston among the poorest of the city. So she started these settlement houses. She lived in the houses with these poor women and their children. Mm-hmm. This woman with all this money, all this education. So she would go from Wellesley College and then come home and, and sleep at the settlement house. This Episcopal woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she prayed her way through all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved hearing the stories of how these, these radicals prayed their way to that place by the side of Jesus. And I love just this image that, like, actually, this is discipleship. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is what our church, if we were really following Jesus, these are the kinds of things that we would be doing. These are the risks we would be taking in our own contexts, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you can pray your way into a pretty radical space if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't be careful. <laughs> well, I've been, we've enjoyed this conversation. It's been a lovely time with you, Stephanie. Thank very, you so much. Very provocative and very informative. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten Preaching Series, a 99-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent and invites a few of them into this podcast to further the conversation. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, our Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator, and thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue and the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts, or dress the same way, or vote for the same candidates, or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcast, and visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you.